Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, and this is the Creativity Habit Podcast, the practice behind the art, the story behind the artist. And this is part two of my interview with artist Melissa Dinwiddie. Enjoy. Back in 2011, I was doing my own set of interviews. This is long before I started my podcast. February 1st, 2011, I was interviewing an artist named Michelle Teberge. She's a, an, a gallery exhibiting fine artist. And she also mentors other artists who want to have gallery exhibiting fine art careers. And they struggle with resistance just as much as the rest of us, right? Here I am in interviewing her not long before that, when my very recently departed, now I refer to him as the lousy ex-boyfriend, had just announced to me that, yes, he loved me and he hoped that we would be together forever, but he had decided that he was moving back to San Francisco and he had found an apartment and he was signing the lease on Monday. Oh my God! <laughs> And that was two weeks after I had just lost this big job that was going to pay my rent. And I, I, I was out of money. I had no savings left. I had burned through my savings because the economy had tanked in 2008. So here I am. I am broke. I am desperate. I'm so, at this point in my life, I'm so desperate to find what it is I really, really want to do. So it's February 1st and I'm interviewing Michelle Tiberge. And she is telling me what she says to her mentees who have, struggle with resistance. And she says to them, if you can't put 15 minutes a day into your art, you're making an excuse, right? And I, at this point in my life, we haven't talked about this yet, but I built up this business as a calligrapher and a ketuba artist, freelance artist, right? I built up a business. That's how I ended up making my living, got divorced in 1999. So I, suddenly I had to make a living. Did you see the divorce coming? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. I was in denial about it. So you and weren't financially prepared? No. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. And I had two and a half years of spousal support, but I didn't really, again, I was in denial. <laughs> and it wasn't really until the spousal support came to an end that I went, oh my God, I have to fish or cut bait. So even during that period when you had been, when you got divorced and were getting spousal support, you still weren't in this place of, I got to figure this out for the long term. I knew I had to figure it out, but I didn't really understand what was involved in that. Got I it. was still in a lot of denial. I, you know, it was a lot of sort of magical thinking. Oh. And I knew nothing about business, nothing about business. You know, my parents had not educated me. My, the school, schools had not educated me. I had not taken it upon myself to educate myself. I mean, I was just la, 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 you know, bury my head in the sand. And you know, one thing actually I wanted to ask you about was money because, so we'll just touch on that now as we go into the story, because you have this thing that said, there's this fear of business and marketing, which is really common as creative types. I really thought my whole life that it was something I had no interest in, just as you're saying. I also kind of believe that knowing how to make money was something that you had to be born with rather than something you can learn. I thought I just wasn't in that line when they were handing out that ability to make money when you're born. Now I know differently. 
So your spousal support ends. And so you're in this place of, I need to figure this out. And this is still the mindset, right? I don't know anything about money. Yes. And (laughs) I don't know anything about money. And all I need is enough to get by. That's all I need is enough to get by. (laughs) But I, but I, I actually, I have to give myself some credit because I figured out that I've been doing a lot of work on commission. That was how I made most of my money. And that was where the big money came. You know, I could make a few thousand dollars making a ketubah, but it was also a lot of hours of work. And I never knew when they were going to come. 2001 was when I made my first print. And that was the game changer. I, I actually got four or five requests for the same design. They really loved it, but they didn't have the, I don't even remember what I was asking at that time, $2,500, $3,000 or something. Do you have a print? Could we buy a print? Because of course the print would be a lot less expensive. Right. The printers were finally coming out. An artist could get a print made for a significantly lower price, right? You right. could have one print made for $500, then each successive print was going to cost you $25 or something like that, instead of having to put down, spend $10,000 to have an entire print run made. So I said yes. And I had like four or five people per, who pre-bought the same design. And then I started selling that print and I realized, oh my gosh, one print is not a business. But if I had a dozen different designs, 20 different designs, wow that that would be like a business then that would even out potentially that would even out my revenue maybe i could retire from taking on commissions maybe i wouldn't have to work so hard maybe wow this this could like totally change the game for me which it ultimately did but the next like 5 years or something it was i was basically running a startup i was working constantly it was so <laughs> stressful <laughs> I couldn't yet retire from the commissions because I wasn't yet making the money from the prints. So I had to, I felt like I still had to say yes to every commission that came my way. I was, I was working overtime. Wow. I was so miserably hard. So at this point though, you are making, you're doing commissions and you're making money off the prints. So you're able to financially support yourself, even though you're like, Totally stressed and I was scraping by. It was nearly killing me. I felt I remember saying like my mantra was I can't wait until I can retire from doing Mm. commissions. I can't wait until I can stop doing commissions. And then I crunched the numbers and I looked at my life and I realized that I couldn't afford to keep doing commissions because it was going to kill me. I was burning myself out so badly. And so I did retire from doing commissions. Was that scary? It was, but it was also this huge relief because I mean, I was so burned out on that business. I really, honestly, I hated it. I wanted, I wanted to sell the business, but I didn't even know how one would go about doing that. I hated it so much, Daphne. I really, like, I was an artist who never made Art. And it, it just like, I hated it. I hated it. How miserable. Here's the thing. And 2005 was the year that I started singing jazz. I started taking jazz classes, jazz vocal solo classes. And I had my first gig in 2006. So then I was a ketubah artist during the day. 
and a jazz singer at night. And so like every night I was either at my class, my jazz singing class, or I was at an open mic or I was practicing at home. I was like constantly listening. They didn't have streaming music, but I was listening to iTunes. I was listening to jazz. Are you thinking at this point, like I've got to figure out my exit plan or like, what do you, you know, in terms of, I'm just going to keep doing this because this is what's paying the bill. I didn't, I, I had such blinders on at that point. I, I thought this is my life. This is it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And the goal when I quote unquote retired from taking commissions, the goal was that it would liberate time for me to make art again for me. That did not happen. Because? Because I, I was so busy. I didn't have time, which of course Right. When we go back to my conversation with Michelle right. Taberge, she nailed me. It wasn't that I was too busy. It was I was making an excuse. And for essentially a decade, I had, I had lied to myself. I had told myself this excuse that I didn't have time. What were you afraid of in making your own art? I was afraid that the gremlins in my head that said I wasn't good enough were right. You know, it goes all the way back to fourth grade, first grade, seventh grade, you know, when I was really young and those seeds got planted that, you know, my well-meaning loving parents who said, you're so talented, you're so smart and all those like gifted after school classes and all that, that I was going to prove them wrong. I mean, now I can see that. So look at me. I'm, see, I'm actually not talented. You were That's, really driven. I mean, you were working really hard. It was just working hard at proving them wrong. And that's, that's all my perfectionism goes back to that. There's still that, that part of me that believes that like, no, I'm not good enough. That belief is so strong in me. Earlier in our interview, when you said, you're so talented, Melissa, there's that voice inside of me that's like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, no, I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what you've learned and what you teach is that it's not so much that those voices ever stop, but how you respond to them. Exactly. That is exactly it. And that is why I practice intentional imperfectionism and all of the like my doodle practice and improv and all of all of my creative practices are about that it's about it's basically can i swear on your yeah you can say whatever it's about saying fuck you those voices and i you know i'm a big believer in sending my gremlins off to get pedicures (laughs) like no you go off and get your pedicure i am gonna keep doing this and it doesn't matter. Like the, when I came back to making art for me, not for clients, not to impress anyone, but for playing, for experimenting purely for me, for the joy of it, I knew that I had to get back in the mindset of being a four-year-old. I had to be in that creative sandbox space, that, that zone of play, right? And in order to get there, I had to create these little rules for myself, you know? And the the first rule, it doesn't matter whether I like it or hate it. All that matters is that I'm having fun. It really doesn't matter if I like it. A lot of times I don't. 
and it doesn't matter. So and you I can not like it and still have fun. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and sometimes that's really hard and I'll be making a doodle and, or a painting or, or a song or whatever and think, well, I don't like this. This is ugly. And I will remind myself how many times have I gone to the Museum of Modern Art and looked at a piece and thought, that is really ugly. I don't like that piece. But somebody paid $10 million for that piece. <laughs> and that helps me look at my own piece and think, huh, somebody else might want to buy this. Yeah. How many times has that happened to me? Do you know how many times I have shared? Well, it's not that many, but it has happened where I have shared something that I've been painting and thought to myself, this is really ugly. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to gesso over it or paint over it or whatever. And I've, because I have a practice, I have a practice of sharing whatever it is I'm creating. Mm -hmm. That was when I started using Instagram, that was my practice. Way back when, when I, this conversation I had with Michelle Teberge, by the time I got off that call with her, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try that for a month. I, I could not imagine that 15 minutes would really make that much difference, but it had to be better than nothing. What I had been doing for the previous right. decade, right? So I thought, okay, February, it's a short month. <laughs> I can do this. So for one month, 28 days, I'm going to put at least 15 minutes a day into my art. I'll set a timer. And I learned pretty quickly, it's better to do it in the morning than the evening, because otherwise it's like 11 o'clock at yeah. night. I'm like, God dang it. I got to yeah. do this before I get to bed, right? So thing I, thing I do first is the thing that gets done. If I don't do it first thing, it's, it's going to get put off till 11 o'clock at night. So thing I do first is the thing that gets done. And I figured out pretty quickly that, man, it doesn't take that long to get into a state of flow. Amazing. Wow. So I started doing that and I loved it. And, and, and what I also noticed is that when I did it every day, it keeps my toe in the creative stream better than if I were to spend two hours on a Saturday once a week. Yeah. Which is really important because a lot of times we think 15 minutes, that's nothing. Or, that's nothing. Yeah. I and, need, I need a big chunk, right? Yeah. I need a big chunk of time. But how many times did I said to myself, oh, I'm going to take a half day. I'm going to take two hours on a Saturday. And it never happened. The thing is, I would say to myself, you're not serious about it if you're not willing to put in two hours. Two hours is a huge commitment. It's too hard. It's like standing underneath a pole vaulting bar, expecting yourself to jump over it without a running start and without a pole. Impossible. Believer in ridiculously achievable. Ridiculously achievable allows you to take that pole vaulting bar that's 20 feet above you and lower it all the way down to the ground. So you can just boop, pop right over it because the hardest part is starting. And when we make it ridiculously achievable, starting is not hard anymore. So if you don't say, I'm going to sit down and make art for two hours, but you say, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do one doodle. I'm going to do, I'm going to make art. One mark. One I even know one of my former clients and a friend of mine, Laureen Marchand, she, I now call, call it the law of Laureen. Her goal, her commitment is any amount 
counts. I don't even have a 15 minute goal anymore. Now I have the law of Laureen, any amount counts. All it is is just one mark on the back of an envelope. I get to check off that I did it. So you started this by saying sometimes you'll put things out that you think are ugly. Yes. Because of your practice. Yes. Put them out anyway. And and I have had more than once, I have had people who see that, how much is that I want to buy it? And what that does, and even before that, just starting to put stuff out on, on Instagram, you know, and I'm sweating, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm putting that piece of crap out on Instagram, but nobody's going to see it, right? Because I, I don't have any followers yet on Instagram because I'm, it's just brand new, right? And then all of a sudden, like some stranger has taken the time to lift their thumb and tap on the like button. They don't know me. It's not like I'm famous. They're taking the time to lift their thumb and tap on the like button. Wow. Well, you know what that does? That allows me to take off my gremlin glasses and put on their glasses and see my work through their neutral lenses, which is huge. So it's, and this is very, very different from sharing my work with the goal of getting validation. Very different. I'm not sharing my work like, do they like it? Do they like it? Do they like it? No, I'm sharing my work with and letting go. Completely letting go, just putting it out there. Making an offer, like in the improv world, we talk about making an offer and then letting it go because somebody else is gonna take your offer and change it. So it's similar to that. You're putting it out there and letting it go. But then do you say anything to yourself before you do that? Like, are there ways that you prepare so that you do fully let go? Or is it just I love that question? I have not really thought about that so much, but I think, I think from years of doing improv, I have that mindset of just making an offer and letting it go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, I think I just do it with an improv mindset and then notice that I am not I'm not sharing it thinking, you know, like, do they like it? Do they like it? Do they like it? But I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. I'm just putting it out there. But noticing that this daily practice, this regular practice, it's like a spiritual practice. It enables me to take off my gremlin glasses and put on somebody else's glasses and see my work through their neutral lenses so that I can look at my work as if it's hanging up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and it's somebody else's work. That's what I want to be able to do. I want to be able to see my work as if it's somebody else's work. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It's a way of creating that separation. It's creating... Exactly. Yeah. And that's having it not be like this is me, Melissa on Instagram. It's like, no, this is just this thing that is it's just now. a thing. Yeah. And that's been so hugely helpful. And that's why I've written a couple of posts on my blog and talked about this on my podcast about the importance of sharing your work. There's two pieces to creating. One is the creating itself, which is scary because we have to step into the void in order to create. We have to step in, totally lean into uncertainty. When we are truly creating, when we're creating something new, not copying something that's already been done, but creating something new, we are stepping into the void. We're stepping into uncertainty. And that is scary. So that's the first piece. And the second piece, which I believe is equally important, is sharing. 
what we create. And that's where so many people get stuck. They don't go to that second piece, that second, and that second part is so, so, so important. And we, so often we feel like, well, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to share my work yet. It's not good enough yet, whatever. We, we make up all sorts of reasons why we don't share. And I'm a big believer in sharing your work before you feel ready. Now, there is a time when it's important for us to, you know, stay cocooned and, you know, nurture ourselves because our egos are very fragile and all of that. And at the same time, there is a time to share before we feel ready. And I also just want to reiterate, because I think this was an important point. When you said one person lifting their thumb, to press the like, that is such a great way to frame it because what we will often do, what I will do is say, oh, only this many people instead of, wait, let's just say 40 people. So instead of going only 40 people, say, imagine a room of 40 people and they were all saying, I like it. I feel like, damn, that's awesome. but I like it. That's a lot. So if we can really see each like in that way that you described it of one person putting, taking the time to put their thumb on it, it's an individual on the other side. Yeah. And I, I think the reason, well, I know the reason that I get down on the metric the only reason I get down on the metric is because the comparison trap, because I see that Daphne got a hundred likes on her thing and I only got two likes on my thing. Therefore I suck compared to Daphne. That that's where I go. Right. Because the comparison trap is my loudest gremlin. It's so important that we talk about this stuff, you know, otherwise then we, otherwise we're all like holding up or in our little caves and going, it's, it's my problem. I'm the only one. <laughs> so I want to know, Melissa, like how you got out of, because here you are, you're going back in time, you know, you're totally burnt out. You're not making art for yourself. And then you start to make a little bit of art for yourself. What starts to shift there? Like, are you still, where are you at? in your business and and then what starts to happen as a result of of this 15 minute a day practice yeah so that what really changed was figuring out the the whole metaphor of the creative sandbox was a huge shifting point for me and understanding that i had really forgotten how to play and that i needed to get back to that And landing on that metaphor, that creative sandbox metaphor, and just so many things that just like unfurled so many things for me. And I really did have to create, you know, we we started looking at how I got into dance and like I needed all these structures and rules. And, you know, the way you do anything is the way you do everything, right? So (laughs) when I came back to art, I needed all these structures and rules to get back to it. Even though like the way, what I needed to get back to was freedom and I needed rules to help me get back to that freedom. So at the, there's a post somewhere on my blog where I talk about this, that my first set of rules was just a handful. And one of them was, it doesn't matter whether I like it or hate it. All that matters is that I'm having fun. Oh, and one was, 
when I get to the place where I know that it needs something, it's not done yet, but I'm afraid that I'm going to ruin it if I add something, go ahead and ruin it. Uh, I have so many UFOs sitting in drawers, you know, unfinished objects, because I'm so afraid that I'm going to ruin it. So I just like don't do anything with it. And then never gets done. So I had this handful of rules. And I remember the piece that I did. I had bought some months before that I had gone to the art store and I bought a package of three, I think there were like eight by eight canvases. I'd never really worked on canvas before. So I'd bought this canvas. They were all still in the shrink wrap. And so I pulled out one of these canvases. I'm like, dang it, I'm just going to, I'm just going to paint on this canvas. And I don't think, I don't even remember what I used, but I just like made a big mess on this canvas. And I remember this feeling like my whole body was buzzing and it was really fun and it felt great. And it was so hideously ugly. It was awful. It was just like the worst thing ever. (laughs) But what I remember from that, the experience of working on that painting, and I hated what came out out of it. it was so God awful, ugly but the experience, I held on to the process, that experience of working on the painting. And it was frustrating because what, the product was awful, but I determined, I was determined to hold on to that process. So, you know, think process, not product. And over the next few months, I continued to try and, you know, work that way. You know, sometime later, I really crystallized my thinking. I took those handful of rules and I fleshed them out into 10. And I called them the rules for the 10 rules for the creative sandbox. And, and I turned them into a song. Is that a song you can sing now? I could. So it goes like this. Anytime you're feeling stuck, you need some help to get out of the muck. You want to find your way back to flow. You need the creative sandbox way. Guideposts. One, there is no wrong. Two, think process, not product. Three, think quantity, not quality. If you take care of the quantity, the quality will take care of itself. Four, think tiny and daily ridiculously achievable. Remember the most important practice is just getting back on the wagon. So it's a very good thing to make it a very short wagon. Five, if you are stuck, just start anywhere. Six, when in doubt, ask what if. Seven, take the riskier path. Eight, dismiss all gremlins. Nine, Spring the comparison trap. Ten, most of all, treat yourself with compassion. Remember the golden formula. Self-awareness plus self-compassion equals the key to everything good. There you have it, creative sandbox way. Guidepost, da-da-da-da. Go get creative. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. So normally I play that, perform that with my ukulele. I love it. And I actually, I want to read a few things that you said about play as we go into play, because I think just to really emphasize what it is you're saying. um, 
One is you said, when I had to rely on my art to pay my bills, I focused more and more just on what's going to bring in the money and I stopped playing. But now I work really hard to keep my intention of having fun and nurturing my creative spirit. And then you said, when you stop following the fun, you drain out that wonderful glow that makes people want to buy things from you. And I was curious when you said this, if you saw that in your own business, that as it was kind of sucking the life out of you and you had stopped playing, if you noticed any kind of response from customers or if anything was changing. I don't know because, so my business grew really organically from when I started it in, I filed my DBA in 96 and things just grew really organically until 2007. I was on track to hit six figures the following year and the following year was 2008 when everything tanked and and I wasn't really doing commissions. I'm trying to remember when I, I came out of, reti- out of retirement. It probably was 2008 because things tanked so much. So I don't, I, don't really, I don't really know. Right, because your business already had suffered so much from the recession. Yeah, and 2006 yeah. and 2007, I wasn't doing commissions. I was just selling the prints. Right. Right. And my plan, you know, was to use that time to make my own art, but I wasn't. So all I was doing business-wise, like visual art-wise, all I was doing was filling orders. It's just like grunt work. (laughs) So what happened though when you did start bringing play back in? Everything changed. It It was like that moment in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy goes from black and white and she steps out into Technicolor in mm. Oz. That's how my life felt. Like what's an example of that from that time? I just remember just feeling happy again. It was, you know, when I was in my late 20s and I started making art and feeling, I remember a similar feeling like that there was a piece of me that was cut off, was denied oxygen suddenly I got to have it again. And there was a way in which that was true again. I felt that to be true again. Even though I had these other ways to express myself creatively. And that's what made me realize, oh my God, I get to have lots of different creative passions. Who knew? It, it wasn't just dance and then it was done. Right. I, and I, I also didn't realize that I was such a, I call myself a passion pluralite. You know, AKA multi-passionate, multi-potentialite, right. scanner is what Barbara Sher, who wrote um, Refuse to Choose. I didn't know that that's how I'm wired. I always thought I just, you know, was incapable of picking just one thing and that I was flaky or something like that. And, you know, now I know I'm a Renaissance soul. Play, because this is such a big part of your work now. Yeah. And it had such a huge impact on your life when you started to bring it back into your life. Apart from, okay, you're drawing and just have fun, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether you think it's ugly or pretty or whatever. Talk to me about how you bring it in as a business, like where, how play fits in as part of the business model. For those of us who are like, damn, we got a lot of work to do. (laughs) Right? So, and Talk to me about that because I know that's part of your your message. 
play, I see as a philosophical approach that's based in experimentation and an imperfectionist approach where you, where you get to be imperfect, you get to experiment, you get to try things. It's not about the outcome. It's not about impressing people. It's not about like the kind of art that I was creating for my clients as a ketubah artist was all about this has to impress my client. This has to essentially win an award. That's very different from the kind of art that is, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I try this. Where's this line going to go? Let's see. Very different animals, right? What we're doing right now, this is improv. This is not about, are we going to win an award with this podcast? (laughs) But Um, if I sit down to something that I know well, like writing, for example, let's take that or let's take painting. There's a lot of folks who listen who are painters. So let's just take that. I sit down to make a painting. Now I have years of training. I have a lot of experience. I know what a good painting feels like to me. And I know what a crappy painting feels like to me. And I sit down and I go, okay, I just want to play. But the minute my paintbrush hits the canvas, something inside of me just automatically turns on, which is the part of me that's been trained. Right. So how do you turn that off to go, no, it's playtime. How, how does that transition happen? Boy, that's, I love this question. Ah. So what I can speak to is how that transition has happened for me. And for me, it is a practice because we, we actually know how to play because we used to play all the time, right? We were born knowing how to play. We unlearned that by layering on all sorts of other practices. We layered on all the practices of how to stand up in, a, in certain ways and how to walk in certain ways and how to talk in certain ways and how to write in certain ways, right? Those were things that we learned through hab- habitual practices. We used to play quite naturally. So I developed my creative sandbox guideposts as practices to bring me back to play. These are practices that I return to all the time. If you were to take an improv class, there are improv practices that one returns to over and over again. One is the shorthand is yes. And like if somebody makes an offer, you yes. And doesn't mean that you say yes necessarily like that you literally say yes to the offer means that you accept the reality of what is in front of you. So it's interesting because we have to learn now how to play after we've been trained in being in the world in a different way. Yeah. This is what, this is what my personal doodle practice is. And the biggest challenge that people have with a pen and paper or paintbrush and paper or the blank page and a typewriter or computer screen or whatever is this fear of the blank page, right? It's overwhelming. Oh my God, how do I start? It's terrifying because it's huge. Like you could do anything, which is paralyzing. Mm -hmm. So what I say is how do you deal with fear of the blank page? You make it unblank. You just make a mark. You just start, which is guidepost number five. Just start anywhere. 
And I literally, I don't have any preconceived notions. Well, I'm going to make a dog or I'm going to make a circle or I'm going to make a whatever. I just make a mark. I mean, I could close my eyes. I could throw a dart and, and make a hole in the page and that would be my, my mark. It doesn't matter. I make a scribble. It doesn't matter because now I have something to respond to. And what do I do now? I respond to it. How do I respond to it? It doesn't matter. I do something. And now life is live. Now I respond to that thing. And this is the practice of allowing ourselves to respond to what's there in front of us, respond to the world as it is right now in front of us, letting ourselves get into that four-year-old mind space of, oh, there's something there. What do I want to do with that? And that's really hard for those of us who are decades old, right? Mm -hmm. That's hard for us to do because we don't often have situations where we get to play. We often have a boss or somebody saying, well, you have to you know, get the report in by five o'clock and it has to have this, that, and the other thing attached to it or whatever. But we don't often have a situation where we get to just do whatever the heck we want because it's fun. Well, and how can we bring that play? Like say we have the boss that says, okay, this has to be in by five and the whole thing. How, how, how do we bring play into that? Like whether it's in our artwork or whether it's in the job that leads us because if we bring play i'm thinking that if we bring play into the job then when we go to create there's so much more energy for creating i would say you know start with start where you are and start in the smallest way that you can give yourself in a nook in a cranny in your life give yourself the gift of a tiny teeny tiny creative practice mm -hmm. play creative sandbox practice that is purely for you, purely for the joy of it. Give yourself that gift. Maybe it's two minutes. I, I do it in bed. So in the morning, because the thing I do first is the thing that gets done. So I literally do it sitting up in bed and I draw for a few minutes. I doodle for a few minutes. And then you share that. And then I take a pic picture of it on my iPhone and I post it to Instagram. So, you know, find the thing that's going to be fun for you that'll feel like play and experimentation and like that you're looking forward to and doing every day. What I notice about the doodle practice is that when you do it every single day, it doesn't feel like much. Each little doodle itself doesn't feel like you've done much at all. But over the span of days and weeks, I start to notice small things over time. And it's this profound spiritual practice, how I, how I approach the page. It's like how you approach the yoga mat. You're, you're a different person on the yoga mat. Every time you approach the yoga mat or sitting on your meditation cushion, every time I sit on the meditation cushion, my breath is different. Every time I approach the paper with my pen and my doodling, I, my, my pen is different. It wants to do something different every day. It's, it's, fascinating how I feel about it is different every day. Some days I hate what I make. <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? Five seconds in is different from how I feel about it. 30 seconds in is different how I feel about it. A minute in is different how, from how I feel about it. Five minutes in. And I love that your work now is entirely, well, I don't know entirely, but it's largely about 
play and how to bring play into organizations, into collaboration, into teamwork. Is there anything else that you feel is important to convey about play in terms of the artist and the work that they're doing? Because then I just have a few questions I want to ask you about a little bit about business. Yeah, I just want to make sure that I feel so, so, so strongly that artists make sure to set aside sacred creative sandbox time. Whether you choose to make money from your art or not, and especially if you do, it is crucial that you set aside what I call creative sandbox time that is completely disconnected from commerce, completely disconnected from impressing anybody else, where commerce does not enter, where gremlins are not allowed. Now they will find a way in because that's what gremlins do. They're trying to protect us, right? That's their job is trying to keep us safe. They do it in very unhealthy ways, but (laughs) they will always find their way in. And our job is to be aware of when they pop their little heads up Mm. and continue to send them away, send them off to get their pedicures so that we can do the, do our work of playing, right. And, and exploring and reminding ourselves of all of the creative sandbox guideposts of there is no wrong in this space, that this space is all about process, not product. Yes. It's of course, of course we care about what we create. And of course we want to make things that please us, please us. Of course we do. But this space is about the process. And this space is about quantity, not quality. And this space is about thinking tiny and daily. And, you know, this is where we just start and do the thing. And this space is all about self-compassion and imperfectionism. And it is so, so critical, even if it's just for a couple of minutes, just this, it has to be, you just, it is so important. And I believe that I would never have burned out on my art business if I had known about Creative Sandbox space and time. Ah, so you feel that had you had this practice in your life, just even if it's 15 minutes a day, that that could have been enough to keep you from feeling burnt out in the work that you were doing for clients. I do. Now I might still have chosen to move on from that work, Mm -hmm. but my life would have been really different. And I don't regret it. Like I, I love my life and I think things happen for a reason, but I believe that would have prevented the kind of burnout that I had. Okay. So that's great because that is an example. When I asked you for an example, like that's actually a powerful example, even though you don't have it, you didn't do that. It's the example of that's how powerful it is to incorporate this practice into your day is that it can offset so much of whatever might be draining you in the rest. Absolutely. Yeah. We do not nourish that part of ourselves. Part of us dies. It's critical that we find a way to nourish that part of ourselves. And we can accomplish amazing things that feel impossible if we nourish that part of ourselves. So what did you end up, how did you end up changing the relationship that you had to money since you felt like initially, I was not on the line when I was born where they were handing out <laughs> the knowledge about money. So obviously I can't learn it and I don't know it. How did that shift for you? Because that's a big piece of running a business, right? As creatives, 
one, that's a huge stumbling block. And it certainly was for me, my gosh. So I'm curious how you shifted that. Well, I have to say, this is still a work in progress. I, I do not feel like I am, it's not done. <laughs> the work is not done here. You know what? I think this is, a, this is where my golden formula comes in. And my golden formula is self-awareness plus self-compassion equals the key to everything good. And it's the self-awareness that there's a problem here. You know, there's a self-awareness that I have a story in my head that is not serving me. And there's a self-installed glass ceiling butting up against, you know, I need to take a baseball baseball bat and smash it to smithereens. And I keep finding these self-installed glass ceilings. (laughs) They're everywhere. (laughs) But the good thing is, but the, 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 but the first part is first noticing that it's there. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you notice it, then dismantling it is, I wouldn't say that it's easy, but it's easier. So that's the first thing. And then the self-compassion piece is huge you know, beating yourself up never, never, never helps. It doesn't help anything. And so many of us have been trained to beat ourselves up. And so just starting the practice of self-compassion, just starting to flip that script is a life practice, I think. But yeah. it's, it's life-changing. And I'm telling you, life on this side is so much better. So much better. <laughs> And we get to practice self-compassion in our self-compassion practice because we will stumble in our self-compassion practice. You'll be like, oh, I'm practicing self-compassion. And then we'll sort of blow that and beat ourselves up for not practicing self-compassion perfectly. (laughs) And we get to be self-compassionate about that. One last thing then before we do the last part of it. So you said someone asked you, I don't remember where this was, what your advice to artists was starting down the path of art as a career. And you said, I would do a regular gut check to make sure the business that I'm building isn't just built around what I do well, but is also built around what I truly love and adore building. And we've talked about this a lot throughout this conversation. But the question that I have around that is if we're just starting out and we say, well, I adore this, but I'm not sure that this is where the business is going to come from. How do we balance out that gut check of, do I adore this? Do I not adore this? And I need to make money from this because I'm building a business around this. Yeah, that's so important. And I can't believe I didn't write that down. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a huge place that a lot of creatives get really stuck is they don't check that part of it. Well, I love doing this thing, but actually nobody wants to pay you for that thing. Right. Or they're not going to pay you. Like I love knitting shawls. Yeah, but nobody's going to pay you. They're, they're going to pay you slave wages. You love knitting shawls, but really do you want to make minimum wage knitting shawls? I don't think that's a really good choice. So a lot of things that you might love to do are not going to be good, make good business sense for you to do. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I decided to start my consultancy 
because I can make several thousand dollars leading a workshop. It just makes good business sense. Mm -hmm. It takes advantage of some of my, not just my strengths, but my genius zone, things that I, I shine at. I love doing and I get paid really, really, really good money to do. So it just makes really good business sense to do. So if you want to make a bit, if you want to turn what you're doing into a business, then you have to think from a business person's mindset. You have to think like from a business perspective, not just what you love to do and what's going to nourish you like emotionally and psychologically, but spiritually, whatever, but also what's really going to pay. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. And is if the part of what you're doing that's making you money isn't something you adore, then you make sure that you have your creative sandbox right. that you're doing every day to bring that element of play and joy in no matter what. Right. I mean, you don't, this is the other thing. I think a lot of people get, get sort of stuck on the idea that they have to make a living from the thing that, you know, their creative thing from the thing that they love. That's not the only way to do it. Right. You know, my husband loves writing screenplays. He has yet to make a penny from any of his screenplays. Maybe that'll happen one of these days, but that's not what he does full time. He's a full-time technical writer. That's what makes money and pays good benefits. And, you know, we thank God for that every day because he's got the, the steady income and the benefits, right? And he writes his screenplays on the weekends, which is fantastic. And that's the balance that works for him. He also is not really cut out to be a, you know, to work independently. That doesn't, that that doesn't work for him. Like he's not really made to be a, you know, freelancer or, or an entrepreneur. Not everybody is. Everybody needs to figure out the balance that works for them. Right. There's no wrong. There's no wrong. Yeah. Guidepost number one. Yeah. <laughs> the creative sandbox way. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so this is a good point, I think, to bring our conversation to a close. So I have one question for you at the end. But before I do that, well, actually, I have two questions. Before, uh, just so people, if you want to learn about Melissa's work, you want to learn about Creative Sandbox, you want to see the work that she does, basically anything you can go to melissadinwitty.com and I'm going to spell that M-E-L-I-S-S-A-D-I-N-W-I-D-D-I-E.com. Also will be in the show notes, but um, so you can go there to check all of this out, everything we've been talking about, so much of what we've been talking about, you can see on your website. And then um, what is your Instagram handle? I know I follow you, but to see your daily drawings. Yeah, it's a underscore creative underscore life. Okay, great. Great. And then, so the last part is before I ask you my final questions, the first part is a gratitude, which, you know, you talked about your golden formula of self-awareness plus self-compassion equals everything is the key to everything good. And I feel like you have so, that's so who you are. You're so self-aware. I mean, you share your stories with so much presence. Like I know I, I live through that and you're aware of what you live through that you bring this presence to, to your story, to your life. And then from that presence, you're able to like glean this wisdom 
that you then transform into this business that is something for all of us, that can transform all of us, whether it's something we put into place for 10 minutes a day or it's throughout the day, but you have taken this whole long journey and turned it into something that is really gold. You know, it's like, oh, not only has it become gold for you, but it's gold for anybody who chooses to take on what you offer. So thank you for that. The last thing is, well, before I ask you my last question, is there anything else that I haven't asked that you would like to say? Oh, well, I, I just did want to share that I, in addition to my consultancy, I do have this wonderful community, my creative sandbox community, which is my lab for women's leadership through creative expression and play, which is my online community. So I wanted to share about that. And where is that? That's at creativesandboxcommunity.com. Okay, great, great. And so then the last question is, why do you think it's important that each person make their thing? And I would actually tailor that to you to like, why, why is it so important that we get in touch? And you've spoken to this, but I just want you to say one more thing, you know, say any last words on it, that we get in touch and be actively engaged with our creativity. Wow. I... I feel so strongly that this is part of who we are as human beings. And when, when we do not give ourselves that opportunity that we are cutting something off that's so critical to who we are. And we are also denying the world a piece of who we are and our voices and our stories and a gift that could transform and change the world and improve the world in so many ways. And there's so much potential and so much beauty and transformation that is to be found inside our creative voices. And the only way to liberate it is to use it. That's great. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Daphne. This has been amazing. And I, I so appreciate it. I so appreciate your time and you inviting me on your show. Thank you. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists, head on over to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. To review, it does take a few minutes and you do need to subscribe to the podcast. The more reviews, however, the more folks know about all these incredible artists and makers doing such beautiful work in the world. So thank you for taking a couple minutes of your time to share your thoughts over at iTunes and thank you for listening. Don't, don't, oh,